Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Jonathan Rapping is the founder and president of Gideon's Promise, a nonprofit organization that teaches public defenders to work more effectively within the judicial system by providing coaching, training, and professional development. He's a professor at the John Marshall Law School and a visiting professor at the Harvard Law School while remaining a public defender. And now he's written a timely book that focuses on the role that our criminal legal system plays in marginalized and disproportionately black and brown communities in America. Gideon's Promise, a public defender movement to transform criminal justice, is published by Beacon Press, and it brings Professor Rapping to our show now. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, Great to be with you. I think this is really important. Uh, isn't Gideon's promise named after Gideon versus Wainwright, a 1963 Supreme Court decision? What, what did the court rule in that case? Yeah, so, so Leonard, in 1963, the Supreme Court uh, held in, in, in the case Gideon versus Wainwright that, that anyone accused of a crime who can't afford a lawyer is entitled to a lawyer. But, but I think to really understand that, Leonard, we have to appreciate what was happening in America in 1963, right? It was, a, it was a time when the nation was grappling with its failure to provide basic civil and human rights to black Americans in all walks of life, in housing, in education, in commerce. And we were trying to address that through legislation, through, uh, case, through, through case law. And, and so really Gideon's promise was about addressing civil and human rights abuses in the criminal legal system. Um, and, and it birthed public defenders really as civil rights workers. And so, uh, and so that was the purpose of Gideon. But almost 60 years later, uh, Leonard, that, that mm. promise has just not been fulfilled. But wasn't the right to an attorney already guaranteed by the Sixth Amendment? Uh, how did that work throughout our history? Why did we wind up with Gideon versus Wainwright? Sure. So, so that's, you know, it's, it's, it's a little complicated, but the Sixth Amendment, um, up until 1925, what was, was understood to not guarantee a person a right to have a lawyer, but to, but to promise a person that if they wanted to bring a lawyer, they couldn't be denied. It didn't give people lawyers. And, and in a, in, in a case in, in 1925, I believe, um, the Supreme Court held that in federal cases, uh, individuals charged with crimes were entitled to lawyers under the Sixth Amendment. But the Sixth Amendment didn't apply to the states then. It was only in Gideon that the Supreme Court said that Sixth Amendment right to counsel, that had then been a, a, a federal right for, for a quarter of a century, was also applicable to the states. So it wasn't until 1963 that states were required to to, to provide lawyers to people who couldn't afford them. And is this something that was addressed in law schools? Well, it depends Were they on teaching people to, becoming, to become public defenders? Yeah, it really depends on what classes you take. I think, you know, there are, are, are more and more law schools across the country that, that, are, um, that, that have criminal defense clinics where they really are preparing students to think about how to do this very important work. But they still touch a very small percentage of students. In most law schools, it's not required that you take a criminal procedure course. That's an elective in most law schools. Fortunately, at, at my law school, Atlanta's John Marshall, we do require criminal procedure. But most lawyers go through law school having never studied Gideon, despite the fact that it is one of the most important uh, landmark cases uh, of, our, of our criminal procedure jurisprudence. And you've been a public defender work, uh, uh, throughout your whole career. What led you to become one? And, and you began in, in Washington, D.C. Was that a good place to begin? That was a great place to begin, yes. So, so what, what led me to become one, I mean, I, I was raised by activists. My parents were activists. My, my parents got divorced when I was young, and I was raised with my mother, who, who would drag me to demonstrations and protests. I was, you know, I grew up at an interesting time. It was a time when the nation was 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 um, in, engaged in in um, in protest against the Vietnam War and civil rights movement and the women's movement and so I sort of always knew I wanted to to to, to be involved in, in in some way as an activist and and 
my earliest memory, I think I was about six, I went to court with my mother when some friends of ours were arrested at a demonstration, and we walked into the courtroom, and there were police surrounding the courtroom because it was a fairly high-profile case. And as we were sitting there, the lights went out, and there was tussling. And when the lights went back on, I could see my, my mother was very shaken, and her sleeve had been ripped out of her coat. And it was really clear to me, even at that young age, as I sort of sat there, that, that this was a courtroom where injustices were occurring, that, that courtrooms are often places where injustice can occur. And as I looked at our friends... Um, they they were standing next to lawyers who were their protectors. And I really saw these lawyers as really at a young age, the vehicle to ensure that justice is done in court. So, so I think at a young age, I knew I wanted to be a defense lawyer. Um, to be honest with you, I was probably infected by the same stereotypes that the public is generally infected by about public defenders. I sort of thought they were probably not the best defense lawyers. They were kind of bumbling, sloppy, careless. Um, and it wasn't until I interned at the D.C. Public Defender Service uh, as a law student at George Washington University that I met these public defenders who were just the most sort of heroic, the most kind of uh, uh, admirable lawyers I've ever seen. They were people, it wasn't a job, it was who they were. They woke up every day. It wasn't going to work, it was going to engage in a shared mission to make sure that people had justice. And and it was then that I knew that I had to be a public defender, and I, I never looked back. I interned there throughout law school and, and joined the public defender service when I came out of law school. And, and you point out that public defenders represent over 80% of those who interact with the court system. Aren't those clients disproportionately poor and and not white and, and always indigent? Yeah, well, well, by definition, if public defenders represent them, um, they aren't only they are not only poor, they are I would say uber poor because in many states the standard to even qualify for a free lawyer might be the poverty level. I mean it's incredibly low. So so by definition, eighty percent of the people in the nation are, are rely on public defenders. They're poor. Um, I think of the other twenty percent or so, a large number of them are barely scraping by. They may not qualify for a lawyer, but you know, they're they're they they've got loved ones who are mortgaging their homes or they're 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 you know, they're living paycheck to paycheck and scraping together whatever savings they have. So certainly this is a system. Our criminal legal system is reserved exclusively for uh, poor folks. I mean almost exclusively for poor, for poor folks, but but also disproportionately these are people of color. They're black and brown people. They are, you are six times more likely, all else being equal, to end up in the criminal legal system if you're black as opposed to, to, to being white. Um, and, and how so likely is it, is it that, that under those circumstances you'll be wrongfully convicted? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think there is any way we could know how many innocent people are actually convicted. I think with the advent of DNA and forensic science, we are learning that a shocking number of innocent people are convicted, but there still are so many more who do not have the ability to rely on DNA because there was no physical evidence um, and they can't prove their innocence. But, but I also want to say, Leonard, when we talk about wrongful conviction, I would urge listeners to broaden their definition of wrongful conviction. I think we often think of wrongful conviction as someone who is innocent. Um, but... But I think of wrongful conviction much more broadly. I think of wrongful conviction as someone who made a mistake and was disproportionately prosecuted, overcharged, disproportionately punished. If you are in a system where you, you possessed marijuana and you go to prison for 10 years, I would call that a wrongful conviction. You may technically be guilty, but that is not a just conviction. And that happens all the time. Now, 2.2 million people are in America's jails and prisons, with nearly 7 million under some form of correctional control. Are there concerns yep. that uh, people who are presumed innocent might contract the coronavirus while they're in jail awaiting trial? I mean, not only are there concerns, I, I think it's, it's inevitable, right? It's inevitable. Jails have become hotbeds of COVID infections. 
And sadly, I mean, so much of what I talk about in the book, Larry, is this idea that even well-intentioned people who come into our criminal legal system can only live in it for so long before they're shaped by it, before they are shaped by uh, an outlook that says some people are really subhuman. And before you know it, the injustice that you witness every day becomes normalized. And so during this pandemic, we see public defenders across the country going to courts and saying to judges and prosecutors, look, things have changed. You have to release people. These people are being held, many, for nonviolent offenses. Simply because they can't afford bond? Because they're poor, right? Because they can't pay. And so let them go home. And judges routinely are denying those motions. Far too many people are still sitting in jail, presumed innocent, catching COVID. Some of them are dying. What were the problems in the system that led you to create Gideon's Promise with your your wife in 2007? Yes, and I appreciate you mentioning my wife because because, uh, my my wife and I did Mm co-found Gideon's Promise, and She's got a fascinating story. story. She has She's a personal a reason. <laughs> Her father had been she sent does. to jail for 10 years when she was a child. Had he been represented by a public defender? Yes, yes, he had been. And so, uh, and, and so he, he was arrested and charged with crimes he committed years earlier. By the time he was arrested, Leonard, he turned his life around, was married, converted to Islam, had a small business, had four young children. She was the oldest at five. He was given a public defender, and that public defender never told that story. Hmm. That public defender, like so many public defenders, was just overwhelmed and going along with the processing. And he was sentenced to 10 years in Attica. And she grew up knowing her father from behind bars. And, you know, something she said to me that I think is at the heart of the work we do at Gideon's Promise is she said, one time she said to me, you know, it was even harder than growing up, knowing my father from behind bars was coming to the realization that the people I love, most of the men in her life had been impacted by the criminal legal system, that the people I love don't matter. And it dawned on me that the person who most directly delivered that message to that five-year-old girl was a public defender. He didn't even know he was doing it, but his indifference, his acceptance of the status quo sent a message not only to the man standing next to him, but to a five-year-old child and her family And there are children like that across the country. If we don't have caring, supported, resource public defenders, they are most directly messaging to children across the nation who are poor, who are black, who are brown, who are otherized. They don't matter. They're not valuable. So that realization, Leonard, led us to create Gideon's Promise, to support public defenders, to be aware of the importance of this work and to do their best to not message what was messaged to my wife. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Jonathan Rapping, who's written a book called Gideon's Promise, Public, a public defender's movement to transform criminal justice. It's published by Beacon Press. Um, wasn't Gideon's Promise originally called the Southern Public Defender Training Center until 2013? So you saw this as a Southern thing, or was it just simply because you were based in the South? Yeah, you're way too kind, Leonard. I think it's really because I was trained as a lawyer, and I didn't really appreciate what an awful name that was. I didn't <laughs> understand branding. So, so we started the organization. We were working in the South. Um, we saw it as it's not uniquely a Southern problem, but the South has a, 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 a deep history of, of racism, and, and, and the criminal legal system is an extension of that. And so our work was in the South, and we were training public defenders. So we came up with the Southern Public Defender Training Center, and it was a few years later that my wife, who is much wiser than I, said, you know, John, this is an awful name. And we had a focus group to rebrand, and we really wanted to come up with something more aspirational that really reflected, you know, that we're not just training lawyers. Training is a piece of what we do. What we're involved in is building a movement of public defenders to transform a culture. Training is a tool we use, and what what we are doing is building a community that is going to fulfill that promise that the court made in 1963 that was unfulfilled. So Gideon's promise really was 
was the name we came up with to reflect that. But uh, it was really just me not knowing much about branding. <laughs> and you began uh, as a single training program for 16, uh, 16 attorneys in two public defender offices in Georgia and Louisiana. Uh, now uh, you have over 1,000 participants in 104 partners statewide and affiliate public defender offices across 29 states and the U.S. Virgin Islands. Wow. Yeah, the growth has been amazing. And, and, and you know, I mean, at least a thousand participants. I mean, we have a statewide partnership in Maryland, which alone has probably close to 500 public defenders. Um, every public defender goes through this model. Most of our partners are county based offices spread out across half the states in the country, um, disproportionately in the south, but but increasingly all across the country from California to New York. And you've partnered with the Office of the Ohio Public Defender. What's happening there? Wasn't a bill proposed uh, that's at the Ohio Senate Finance Committee that seeks uh, to aid law school graduates who become public defenders to pay their law school debts? Yeah, so that that's an ongoing struggle because so many law students come out of law school with I mean, just incredible debt. Hundred, two hundred thousand dollars, and most public defender offices are paying around fifty thousand dollars a year. They can make two, three, four times that in other jobs, and so it takes a real commitment to do this work. And many people can't can't survive in it because they want to have families. and And so Ohio is one state um, that has been working to address that that crisis. Um, we're we're friends with the public defenders in Ohio. Our partnership is actually with Hamilton County, which is Cincinnati, um, because there's a nonprofit that thought that Cincinnati was dealing with a lot of the things that our office, our partner offices are dealing with, and they started funding lawyers to come to Gideon's Promise, and they've been a partner of ours for several years. Is this the only comprehensive program model that uh, supports public defenders at, at all levels of their career? Because you're talking about well, look, not just lawyers, you're you're, pro, you're talking about new lawyers, supervisors, cheap defenders, trainers, law students who are considering a career in public defense, and and the the clinical instructors who teach them. Right. Yeah. No. No. We. It's a very comprehensive model. Look, there are a lot of wonderful organizations across the country who are who are doing their part to try to support public defenders. There's very good public defender training coming from organizations like the National Association of Public Defense, NLADA, um, NACDL. But, but I think what Gideon's Promise does that is unique is we have a really comprehensive model that doesn't just train folks. It keeps them in that community long term with ongoing mentorship and support and reinforcement and community to really work on transforming culture. Culture change isn't something that happens with a weekend training program. It is ongoing. Um, we're unique in the sense that that model um, is unique, uniquely Gideon's promise. And what were the things that you witnessed as inadequate in the training and preparation of public defenders within our criminal justice system uh, that uh, made you feel that something had to be done more than what people were getting in law schools. Yeah, I mean, again, you know, I think there there, there were many programs that weren't inadequate. I, I also was remiss in not mentioning NCDC, National Criminal Defense College. But, but you had to be able to afford to go to those programs. And it wasn't until I left D.C., which is a relatively well-resourced office, and I moved to Georgia to become involved in the effort to to. Tr- to, to, to build a statewide public defender system in Georgia. Two years later, Katrina hit, and I went to New Orleans to help with the effort to rebuild that office. Did work in Alabama, Mississippi, and I started We're, we're talking about a lot defenders. of red states. There are a lot of red states, although, you know, upstate New York, which, hmm. right, you, I mean, in, in Pennsylvania, where I grew up, um, uh, again, there are red counties, but but even in cities, we, we also work in cities like Birmingham, Alabama, and Montgomery, um, Alabama, and and Atlanta. Um, There's a public defense crisis even in blue cities. It is not a red problem. I I, I think it is true that when you find offices that are are really good and well-funded, they tend to be in more progressive cities. But there are 
plenty of cities that are blue that do not support public defense. It is it is a problem that exists across the board. And, and, and back to your question, Leonard, we started meeting these young, passionate public defenders hmm. who cared very much. And they were just having the passion beaten out of them by these systems that accepted this low standard of justice. And so I asked my wife to step away from teaching for a year. She was a, a, a public school teacher. Um, that was 14 years ago. She's never gone back. She's the executive director. Uh, and the idea was not just to train, but to, to support these lawyers and nurture the passion that brought them into the profession in the first place, because otherwise they would lose that passion and become part of the problem. What advice would you give a law school student, you met, who may be interested in pursuing public defense work? Well, I would say this. Um, I think, first of all, you have to figure out what kind of public defender do you want to be? Um, it was something I didn't think about in law school. So when I was in law school, anyone who wanted to be a public defender, we were looking to go to a handful of offices, D.C., New York, Philadelphia, San Francisco, the well-resourced offices. There was no one um, that was doing, that, that was sort of, there were no offices that were sort of really re- recruiting law students to go to, to, to the South. Um, and, and, and so I think what you need to figure out now is what kind of public defender do you want to be? If you want to go to a really good office where you can give everyone the representation they deserve, you could go to a D.C. public defender service. But what I tell law students is if you don't go there, someone just as good as you will take that spot. There are 100 law students as qualified as you waiting for that position, and no one in D.C. will suffer. If you don't go to D.C., if you don't go to the Bronx, um, if you don't go to Brooklyn or Harlem, but if you go to the if you come to Mississippi or Alabama or Georgia, you are going to have more cases than you can handle. You will watch people fall through the cracks on your watch, but you will be part of a network that is raising the standard of justice. But it will come with pain. It will come with real emotional trauma. And so what I'd say is figure out which kind you want to be. And if you want to be the latter, connect with us at Gideon's Promise so you can get the support and the training you need so you don't end up becoming the lawyer you never wanted to be. you got to figure that out. And now you've written this book. Uh, did you write it in reaction to the, the heightened racial tensions we've seen recently that have been exacerbated by the coronavirus pandemic? Um, I wouldn't say it was reaction to that. I started writing the book before the sort of national reaction. But before I think George Floyd? Re- before George Floyd. But, but I think the national reaction, Leonard, w- was a reaction that public defenders had been having for years. So the reaction to George Floyd, public defenders had been having that every time they had clients who were abused by police and and. and and while we see the, 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 the killings of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, I mean, public defenders see, you know, a, 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 a much wider range of, of, of violence. Most people survive police encounters and they're thrown into a criminal legal system where they're subjected to a, 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 a more invisible violence, a normalized violence, a routinized violence when they're held in cages because they can't afford to pay their bail when they're overcharged and coerced into taking a plea when they're giving draconian sentences and taken from their children, right? That That's violence. And so the book was really more of a reaction to that violence and that injustice that was happening to people on the margins every day that public defenders were thinking about long before George Floyd was was murdered and, 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 and COVID struck the nation. And- and Derek Chauvin wasn't represented by a public defender, but hadn't Floyd already had a complicated history with the police and the courts before he was killed by Chauvin? Was yes, Had he been inter- represented by public defenders? That is such an interesting point. Um, so, so George Floyd, you know, he had a criminal history. In 2004, in fact, he was accused of selling $10 worth of marijuana, I believe, um, and he was overcharged and and ended up taking a plea because he couldn't afford not to. And he did 10 months. Huh. It's now come to light that the the own the officer who was the only witness in that case had what was completely unreliable. He had fabricated warrants. There's now a move afoot to have George Floyd 
uh, his conviction posthumously reversed. So, so what that really shows us is that while the nation became concerned about George Floyd, when Derek Chauvin kneeled on his neck for more than nine minutes, and prosecutors stood up and, and, and prosecuted Derek Chauvin, right, as, as if they were sort of the heroes of the story, those same prosecutors for years turned a blind eye, a blind eye as police engaged in illegal searches and seizures, coerced confessions out of people, planted evidence, didn't check their stories. And so the same prosecutors who were asking to prosecute these police are the ones who have created the problem. They have allowed police to get away with this sort of violence, these sort of shortcuts um, that we only seem to care about when someone ends up dead. But Qualified immunity, isn't it? Well, qualified immunity makes it almost impossible to hold police officers accountable. But prosecutors can hold them accountable in everyday cases by just not trusting what they say without looking behind the stories, not taking police reports as gospel, you know, not allowing these stories to end up in in mass incarceration without checking them. Um, Prosecutors can do that, right, even in a world with qualified immunity. Now, uh, is this a matter of just bad cops and good cops, or is the system the problem? Well, I, I'm a firm believer. I mean, there, there are there are there are bad police, there are bad prosecutors, there are bad judges, there are bad defense lawyers. But but I do think that the problem is a system problem because I think even good people that go into this system in any role, um, again, without the kind of support that we're trying to provide through Gideon's Promise, um, it becomes really easy for that system to shape you. Can I tell a quick story that I think illustrates this? Um, That's why we invited you. (laughs) It's not just police. There's a story I I frequently tell, and it's in the book, about a man who was the elected president of the Tennessee Public Defense Commission. He was basically the spokesperson for public defenders in Tennessee. And he was at a budget hearing representing public defenders. And he was asked a simple question. Do you have enough resources? He said, let me tell you, I have a five-county district. I have five offices. And I have five lawyers and one investigator. He said, last year we closed 4,000 cases. That's 800 cases per lawyer. And he went on to say, so let me assure you, there's one district in Tennessee that has enough. He said, we're blessed. He said, we're blessed to have seasoned lawyers that are good at processing, they're efficient, they are time savers. Those were literally the adjectives he used with pride to talk about his lawyers. And I share that story with public defenders when I am warning about the problem of culture. And I say, I don't believe that man came out of law school 30 years ago saying, you know what I want to do with my life? I want to help process 800 people a year into cages. I think I'll become a public defender. I don't believe that. I believe he was slowly and subtly shaped into a lawyer he never would have recognized as a law student. That culture shapes judges, prosecutors, police, probation officers, everyone in the system. There are certainly bad apples, and we've got to deal with bad apples. But dealing with bad apples won't fix the problem. If we don't address the cultural challenge, we will never have the kind of justice that we all deserve. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. We're back with Jonathan Rapping. He's written a book called Gideon's Promise, a public defender movement to transform criminal justice, published by the Beacon Press. Uh, you say Lady Justice is not blind, that she targets certain populations, and that perhaps no other time in modern American history since the Civil Rights Movement has this harsh reality been so vividly exemplified. So do, uh, do there tend to be differences in the decisions about whom to charge and what to charge them with and, and how to treat them once they're convicted? 
Yeah, you know, it's 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 funny that that we're having this conversation today because yesterday, um, John Marshall just started classes this week, and yesterday I was teaching a criminal procedure class, and the question came up when a student mentioned criminals. And I said, and this happens every semester, and I said, well, that's interesting. Let's unpack that. What do we mean by criminal? Who is a criminal? Is it someone who made a mistake, who violated one of society's rules, and they all stop and think, well, that can't be it because I probably just ran a stop sign on my way to school today, right? And then I say, well, is it someone who was arrested or is it someone who was convicted? And we have this conversation about who we give that label to, criminal, right? And, and you know, I think we quickly realize that all of us, routinely violate society's rules, the people that end up in the system is really more about who is targeted, who's policed. Those are the ones who are arrested and held accountable. And so if we look at policing patterns, there, there are communities in Atlanta where you see police every day, all day long. And there are communities that never see police. I say to my students, Name a high-crime area in Atlanta, and they all name some community that is low-income, disproportionately black and brown, um, high unemployment rates. And I say, you know, I, I would argue maybe it is the campus of Georgia Tech. I bet there's not a student on the campus of Georgia Tech who hasn't drank before they were 21 or maybe smoked marijuana. But no one thinks sold of them marijuana. as criminals. Sold marijuana, right. No one think they, we're training them to be the future senators and representatives, right? The, the leaders of industry. We're not policing them and ruining their lives. So absolutely, when you look at, at, the, at, at the demographics of who's in the system, it is much less about who actually breaks society's rules and more about who we monitor and patrol and arrest and charge. Absolutely. Don't you sometimes refer to the criminal justice system as the criminal legal system? Why that distinction? Yeah, no, I, 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 I do. Um, I do use the term criminal legal system, and, and it's because I really think criminal justice is an aspiration, but it's not something that happens today. And I am very sensitive to the fact that um, there are many people that public defenders are aligned with who don't believe that there is anything close to justice happening in the system and to call it a criminal justice system signals to them that somehow what's happening to their loved ones that we would never tolerate for our own loved ones could be justice. Um, and so it's really a legal system. It is a system that, that um, addresses people, uh, who, who, who are, 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 are implicated in our criminal laws. But I think we have a long way to go before the aspiration of justice is really hasn't there, part of that system. Hasn't there also been a movement to criminalize activism, as we saw when federal police uh, were dispatched to cities like Portland and Seattle in order to, quote, restore order, uh, crush dissent, and, and neutralize the Black Lives Matter leadership and, and uh, throw them in jail with dubious charges? Yeah, I mean, of course that's true, and it's, it's not new. I mean, when we think about the history of of, 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 of crime and punishment in America. It was 50, 60 years ago when we really entered this era of tough on crime. And, it, you know, it started at a time when, when black Americans were taking to the streets as activists to protest basic civil rights abuses. And there were politicians who understood that, that there was political gain to be made by, by sort of... Uh, uh, sort of labeling these protesters as threats to the moral fabric of society. They were able to galvanize white working class voters. And, and the use the word on, riot. They use the word, word riot. riot instead of protest. Mm. And, and, and the war on drugs was really a war not on all drugs, but drugs used by uh, people in urban communities. And, and I will tell you, I was thinking about this because when we were, when we were beginning our partnership in Maryland, we were training public defender trainers in Maryland, and it was in the wake of the Freddie Gray killing. 
And I remember there were protesters in the streets when we were in Baltimore. All of our trainers were in Baltimore. And we were out in the streets, and they were people who were very, who were very peacefully and respectfully protesting. And then I flew back to Atlanta, and I turned on the news. And I didn't matter what channel. It could have been CNN or, or MSNBC or Fox. You saw the same handful of images of destruction, right, of sort of, of, of property damage. And I realized this is probably just what it was like in the 60s, where that story was being sold to America, that these weren't peaceful protests. These were people who were rioting, who were destructive, and that's what's happening today. And so, yes, absolutely, there is an effort to criminalize protesters who want to challenge the status quo, because people who benefit from the status quo aren't comfortable with that challenge. You've said that... Astute... Go ahead, I'm sorry. I was going to say, I think that's astute of you to bring that up, Absolutely. You've said that uh, as the na- I'm quoting, as the nation has focused on criminal justice reform over the last few years, public defenders have played a really important role that's been ignored. In what way? Well, if you listen to the conversations about criminal justice reform, um, you know, it, it, probably around 2015, 2016, the nation really started to collectively agree in a bipartisan way that mass incarceration was a problem. And we started to hear talk about sentencing reform, about decriminalizing relatively minor misconduct. Um, There soon became this movement to elect more reform-minded prosecutors um, and judges. But public defenders were completely ignored. And And I think that is a fatal omission, because if you believe, as I do, that the criminal legal system is the way it is because of a narrative that says some people are subhuman, right? Then you understand that the only way we can have justice is when the stories of the people who have been silenced, when the voices of the people who have been silenced are heard, when we see people as human beings, complex human beings, rather than just case files. Until we do that, we can't have justice. And Public defenders, as we talked about earlier, represent 80% of the people in the nation. They, they literally collectively have the power to learn the stories of people who have been silenced in the criminal legal system, to tell those stories, to amplify those voices, to inject the system with humanity. And what I always say to judges and prosecutors who, who see themselves as progressive is I say you can't act on your most progressive instincts if you don't know anything about the human being who's, who, who, who are impacted by your decisions. And you only know that if there are public defenders who have the time and the resources to learn those stories and share them with you. So I, I think the fact that we tolerate people having public defenders who are overwhelmed and beaten down and under-resourced essentially ensures that even the best people in the system can never see the people they judge as human beings. They can only see them as case files. And I think public defenders are literally the most important players in the system. And you said the biggest challenge public defenders face is that they come to work because they care about people. They want to help stop and prevent injustice, and they're thrown into a system that's inundated with the most inhumane, unjust treatment of people. Uh, more often than not, aren't even the most well-meaning of the public defenders overworked, underfunded, incentivized to put the interests of judges and politicians above those of their clients? Yeah, I think they're resisting those pressures every day. I mean, the, 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 I often talk about culture. The metaphor I use is a whitewater river. And you could jump in that river and you can decide to swim against the current. And you can do it for a little while, but it's only a matter of time before your arms get tired. <laughs> and you're either going to get out of the water or you're going to go along with the flow. Public defenders are diving into the white water rapids of this criminal legal system and every day trying to swim against it. And if we don't give them support and we don't give them help, absolutely, after a while, that current is going to take them. The, the getting so close to injustice, when you seem to be the only one who even recognizes it's an injustice, does terrible violence to your soul and to your spirit. 
And so back to Gideon's promise, I think we, we're great at training public defenders. We're great at mentoring public defenders. But if there's anything we do that I would say is most important, it is helping give public defenders the support in the community they need to maintain their spirit and their soul. Because once they've given in to the status quo, reform is literally hopeless. Aren't they often pressured to accept plea deals that may carry a less severe sentence than if the case had gone to trial and they'd lost? Yeah, not, not, only, not only are they often, uh, almost, almost all the time. So, so your listeners should understand that, that millions of cases, more than 10 million people are arrested in the nation each year. And 90, over 95% of the cases that come into the system um, that end up in conviction are resolved by plea, right? That means less than 5% of the cases go to trial. Our, our Constitution, the founders who drafted the Constitution, envisioned that just outcomes required trials and, and, and with, with a lawyer. Um, that's almost non-existent nowadays. And so nowadays what really happens is someone is arrested, they are given a bond they can't afford, they're sent to jail. Prosecutor says, I've charged more cases than I could possibly try, so let me just find ways to, to, to shortcut these cases through the system. They go to someone and they say, listen, you got a kid who's got a soccer game this weekend. If you plead guilty to a lesser, you'll be home for that soccer game. If you don't, you will sit here for six, eight, ten months waiting for the next trial date. And most people don't have the ability to resist that pressure. They have families and jobs and responsibilities. Or they stack the charges and they say, listen, if you plead guilty, you'll do five years. If you want to go to trial, you're looking at life. And someone thinks, wow, I've got a seven-year-old child. I could be home to see them graduate from middle school and watch them go through high school, or I could literally miss every day of their life. That's pressure. And to, to entertain the fiction that people are pleading guilty because they are guilty, as opposed to they're trying to lessen the pain and do what's best for the people they love, is truly a fiction. So does all of this undermine the promises of Gideon versus Wainwright? Well, I think all of that absolutely undermines it, and it's why it hasn't been fulfilled. And while I think public defenders aren't the only piece of the solution, when public defenders really have the, the time to get behind the cases, to find all the flaws in the cases, to investigate officers like the officer who lied about George Floyd in, in 2004, I think public defenders can bring these errors to light and really ensure that a lot of this injustice uh, is nipped in the bud before it comes to fruition. Now, of course, that's only... That, that, that's only a piece of the solution, but it's a critical piece of the solution. And our ignoring it, again, is a fatal admission. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is Jonathan Rapping. Uh, his book, Gideon's Promise, a public defender movement to transform criminal justice, is published by Beacon Press. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Your offices are in Atlanta. Hasn't Georgia's Governor Brian Kemp proposed budget cuts to public defender offices? He, he has. I mean, he's not alone, but, but he absolutely has. Public defenders in Georgia are under-resourced and overwhelmed like they are everywhere. Um, and again, when it comes time to, to deal with budgets, uh, you know, people that public defenders serve aren't a politically popular group. Um, they don't have a strong lobby. And given that disproportionately people with felony convictions um, come from black and brown communities because of policing patterns, because of prosecution pa patterns, many of those people are, are, are disenfranchised. They can't even vote. And so elected officials don't care much if they don't like their decisions. But but absolutely, that's that's a long-winded way of saying yes. Uh, in Georgia, like in many places, public defender budgets have been cut uh, as we've tightened the belt. And what is the justification given for, for cutting them? 
considering well, the law we, and its Supreme, and Supreme Court decisions. Yeah, so, so, so uh, I mean, unfortunately, while the Supreme Court in 1963 promised that every person accused of a crime gets a lawyer, um, it never articulated what kind of lawyer a person is entitled to. And I believe, Leonard, they didn't do that because they felt that it was obvious. Gideon was a case about equal justice. And if the case is about equal justice and the lawyer is the vehicle necessary to ensure justice, then the kind of lawyer that low-income people are entitled to are the kind that you and I would pay for. But never said that. And so 21 years later in a case called Strickland, um, the court was asked to answer that question. And it was a very different court. It wasn't the Warren Court anymore that engineered the, 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 the criminal procedure revolution. It was the Rehnquist Court. And, and that court said, um, if you're charged, if you believe your lawyer was ineffective, you have to prove two things. One, that your lawyer was incompetent, that they were drunk, that they slept through trial, that they did nothing to prepare. But even if you can do that, there's a second hurdle. You have to show that if you had a sober lawyer, an awake lawyer, a prepared lawyer, a competent lawyer, you would have won. And that standard is so impossible to meet. It is virtually impossible to show your lawyer was ineffective given that standard. And because of that, states are let off the hook. States understand we may need to give people a lawyer, but we don't have to give them much much as one. As long as they have a bar card and they're breathing, <laughs> it's going to be almost impossible for the person to claim that we didn't give them a good enough lawyer. And so if states don't care about the people who rely on public defenders, they have a way out. Just give them someone who is overwhelmed. The courts will rubber stamp that conviction. I imagine it's rather frustrating when you are a public defender who knows you have a good case, but you're facing a judge you know has already made up his or her mind. Oh, absolutely. How do you deal with that? You just simply uh, shrug and give up or hope to appeal? Well, I don't think it's giving up. I mean, what we teach at Gideon's Promise is something called client-centered representation. And the idea is that our clients... um, deserve autonomy. They deserve control over their decisions. It's not our job as lawyers to to substitute our judgment for theirs. It's our job to make sure they understand the lay of the land. They understand the evidence against them. They understand the decisions that they have to make. But, but, But they need to decide their priorities. And so, it's a hard conversation that public defenders have every day, but you, you have to sit down with the person you represent and say, listen, we could go to trial. And I think these are all the reasons why the case is really strong. I also want you to understand this judge and how I think this judge is going to try to cut us off at the knees at every turn. These are the risks that going to trial entails, given the judge that we have. Lay it all out and then say, what, what do you want to do? Um, and at the end of the day, unfortunately, we put people in the position every day of having to make incredibly um, unjust decisions about their life because of exactly what you said. Their case may be incredibly winnable, but they don't believe they're going to get a fair trial, and the, and, the, and the stakes of losing a trial are just too high. And when public defenders are handling 300 cases with too few resources and face structural challenges, doesn't that often lead them to prioritize the needs of judges and funders over clients to take shortcuts? Well, it does. I mean, even the best public defenders, when you have 300 cases, like you, you could be Wonder Woman or Superman, you can't handle 300 cases the way that the people you serve deserve them to be handled. Um, so unfortunately, being a public defender in America requires triage. And how you make those decisions are really, really difficult. But I think you point out an important point, and that is, where the pressures have you making those decisions based on the priorities of judges or prosecutors rather than the people that you represent, you've become part of the problem, right? So what we can't do is we can't create a community of public defenders that will be able to give every person what they deserve today. What we can do is we can make sure that as they're thinking about how to make these difficult decisions, they have their clients' interests in mind, while simultaneously we are, we are developing the next generation of public defender leaders 
who are going to have the resources and tools to fight state houses and county commissions to get the resources and the services that public defenders need. Well, we have just about a minute left, but uh, I wonder, in the light of the current political and cultural environment in this country, is it possible to change things all that much? Uh, I'm I'm an optimist, um, and I absolutely believe it is. And what I always say to my law students is, in the next three years, the most important thing you can do is find your purpose. I think that extends beyond law students. All of us have to figure out our purpose in this world and wake up every day doing whatever we can to inch towards it and recognize that if collectively enough of us are doing it, that will bring change. Um, I've got two kids, and my hope, that their future depends on me remaining hopeful. So I am an optimist. <laughs> well, I thank you so much for being on our show. I hope that your optimism is well-founded. Uh, I've been speaking with Jonathan Rapping, who has written a book called Gideon's Promise, a public defender movement to transform criminal justice. It's published by Beacon Press. We're at a great pleasure. It's been talking with you. Eye-opening. Thank you so much. Thank you, Leonard. Yeah, no, I appreciate you. Thanks so much. And that brings us to the end of today's show. If you'd like to hear more of our shows, you can access our archive of over 500 interviews streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. And you'll find links to all of our shows at LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you would like to write to me, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI. We need all of our listeners who have the finances to do so to step up and make a tax-deductible contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. Call them call it right now to keep the kind of unique in-depth content we bring you on the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. Because without your help, there's no way that this historic station, the only one on the New York radio dial that's completely listener-sponsored, can stay on the air. Uh, and uh, we also uh, ask you to consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, maybe $10 a month, $15 a month. It really helps us feel a bit more secure and plan for the future. So why not make that call right now in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large so that we can keep bringing you the kind of programming you won't hear anywhere else. Again, the number to call, 212-209-2950, or you can go online to give to WBAI.org. And to everyone who's already stepped up to support the station in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large, we thank you very much, uh, and I'm hoping that you can join us again tomorrow when actor Tim Robbins will discuss his new play, which is called We Live On. It's a modern adaptation of Studs Terkel's Hard Times. We'll see you then.